This is the podcast that finds the most elusive people, the everyday amazing kind that you know nothing about. I'm hunting these people down and exposing their beauty to the world. I'm Andrew Bracewell, and this is Everyday Amazing. To wear the mask is hard. It's a burden to wear the mask of always being fine. But Mm -hmm. to not wear the mask is also excruciatingly hard. Hello, hello, hello to everybody in the podcast universe. Our guest today is charming, thoughtful, introspective, and insightful. Now, in the spirit of full disclosure, I've only been in his presence for roughly 90 minutes and exchanged a few emails. So my data is limited, and he could be a total jerk. But today we will definitely find out. What I do know for certain is that he is a brilliant thinker. Brendan Kwiatkowski, which I may have just said wrong, is a PhD candidate from the University of Edinburgh researching adolescents' males' beliefs about emotions, school, and masculinity, and looking at the relationships between all three of those elements. Brendan worked as a high school teacher in the Lower Mainland for five years. And during that time, he received his master's in special education. He primarily taught psychology, history, and science, as well as created and led a social-emotional group for high school boys. Brendan has been interviewed about his research on CBC Radio 1, as well as many other podcasts. His stated personal and academic mission is to help males connect to their emotions and to others in healthy and healing ways. Brendan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the last name because I probably butchered it. How do you pronounce it? Well, my wife and I changed the pronunciation when we got married. So you pronounced it before I got married. And then I changed it to Kwiatkowski, which is like a slightly more evolved form back to the original would be Kwiatkowski would be the more Prussian Polish pronunciation. I was going to say, this is obviously European. So it's it's Prussian Polish. Yes. Yeah. My heritage traces back to its German roots, but in um, present day Poland, but used to be Prussia. Got it. Got it. Okay. So uh, we're going to get into your research and, and all that entails. But before we do that, I want to make you human a little bit. What is your, are you, are you binge watching anything right now? What's your, what's your Netflix or streaming go-to? Um, right now it's Brooklyn Nine-Nine for the, <laughs> for the third time. <laughs> for the third time. Yeah. Wow. Is there a character there that you feel is representative of you or why three times? Oh, I think like a mix between Jake and Charles Boyle. Um, yeah, it just it gets me laughing out loud more than other shows generally do and, and does so in a fairly um, non-offensive way, which, yeah, which is somewhat important to me. Which is appealing to you. Yeah. And so is this... Uh, is this therapy time for you when you're, when, how are you using your, your, your shows? Is it late at night, staying up too late or what? Uh, well, my wife's pregnant with twins right now. So I massage her during (laughs) her feet during those times. (laughs) Okay. So do you even actually want to watch or is that just, that's just, Oh no, I totally want to watch. Wow. And is it how many, like every, every, every week, a few times a week, what's your, what's your protocol? Uh, most nights. Most nights. Okay. I just, uh. I just finished, it's a fairly new show on Netflix called Messiah. Have you oh, heard of it? I've heard of it. it I've is, heard great things, but I haven't seen it. It's fantastic. 
it's absolutely fantastic. You absolutely have to give it a listen. It's uh it's a modern day look at what a, if the, if the Messiah story were to happen today, how that would unfold in like 2023, 2024 kind of thing. Taking in all of the current context of, you know, past wars, cultural strife, you know, whatever, but it's happening today. There's a guy that appears and he has a message and he's parading through the streets of Iran, preaching and then leading people out into the desert. And then what that creates in the world context, absolutely fascinating. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It'll, it surely will offend, you know, many, many Christians and Muslims. So only, only if you're like right in the, in the middle, would you possibly not be offended, but it's, it's, it's really good. Uh, Hey, let's get to your work. So Edinburgh, Edinburgh, Edinburgh. Why? Why Edinburgh? Um, three reasons. Uh, one, on my first paternity leave, my wife and I traveled to Iceland, Ireland, Scotland, England, and fell in love with Edinburgh. It was the first time in all my travels where I thought I could live here. It kind of had this weird Canadian vibe to mm. it more than any other place I visited. And so then when I went to look at PhD programs in education, I was in between UBC and Edinburgh based kind of on location, but I really love um, how Edinburgh is really, well, UBC is too, but focused on social justice and inclusion um, as an integral part of their education program there. And so, um, and then practically, I missed the deadline for UBC, so I, (laughs) (laughs) so then tried for Edinburgh, kind of wanted an adventure, and yeah, it was way more money, but got some scholarships, and so that made that decision easier yeah so in my limited research of edinburgh it's fairly significant in the uk like it's it's deemed one of the top you know one of the top places to be and that's what i wanted to bring up you actually have you have a full ride and you're getting paid that might not even be the accurate way to say it stipend something like that yeah can you just talk about that that process because i feel like that's fairly significant maybe you don't want to talk about it but but it, it seems it seems significant surely not everybody's in this position that you are yeah, I'm definitely very grateful to be in the position I am um, because it is super expensive. And I don't love talking about it, um, but at the same time, there's an interview process and how I have understood it is that they want universities want to invest in people that they think have longevity and they think can um, speak about their topic or contribute significantly to their topic. And so I really appreciate that the University of Edinburgh um, I guess, put money behind me. And yeah, and so that's something I'm very grateful for. How many people in the world, this might be a ridiculous question and tell me if it is, but how many people in the world are doing the research that you're doing or something very similar in other universities? I imagine the number can't be big. Uh, d- yeah, because it gets so specific to right. um, like Canadian high school males, um, which is what my research is about. Um, there was a couple people f- in the last couple decades that I know of that were quite prominent. Um, but currently it's, I don't know of, I couldn't even give you an accurate number. Right. Right. It's, it's obviously not so prevalent that there is a number that pops into your head, but clearly there's other people doing this in their own context in other places. Yeah. Cause that's one of the things about, um, all research, but really when you look at gender, it's like, masculinity in Canada or even in British Columbia is going to be different than masculinity in Quebec. Um, and so really once you get really narrowed in there, yeah, isn't many people doing what you're doing. That was actually going to be a question I posed. May as well do it now. You know, you're doing your research in 
you know, here in the lower mainland, British Columbia, how much does it change? Do you think based on geography? I realize that we're speculating here to some degree, but you know, is it fair? It probably wouldn't be fair to say that all of Canada is the same. It certainly wouldn't be fair to say that North America would be the same. And then, you know, different countries I'm sure have different trends. So what would, what would you expect to see in terms of differences, even between like, let's say Canada and the United States? Hmm. Uh, in adolescence or in men in general? Oh, well, both, I guess is it would be a fair question, but let's just even say adolescence, you know, cause, cause that's what you're doing. Yeah. So, um, statistics wise, around adolescent age in Canada, um, males are three times more likely to die from suicide than females. In the States, it's four to five times more likely. Um, so you could read into those statistics and use that as evidence that maybe some of the masculine norms to hide your emotions, um, to man up, are stronger in the U.S. than in Canada overall. Um, Generally, there's the major themes are quite the same. Like the, of the main tenets of what masculinity has stood for since it's been researched, which started in essentially the 1970s, has remained fairly stagnant. Um, and those are, at the time, a guy named Brannon um, summarized them as don't be a sissy, be a sturdy oak, give him hell, be a big wheel. This was developed in 1970. 1976, I believe. And you're saying this hasn't, there, I mean, this clearly this is changing now, but to this point, there hasn't been much change. Yeah. So what researchers who have been researching masculinity since that time, uh, what they've noted is that there's been a surprising lack of change. And the trend is when researching, researching what's acceptable for females and what's acceptable for adolescent males is that the male box has stayed relatively stagnant, whereas the female box has managed uh, to accommodate more uh, stereotypically masculine traits. And so females are allowed to be more masculine than males are allowed to be more, f- what it was deemed as more feminine um, historically. And is there, a, is there a relationship between suicide in men from the time that this philosophy was adopted in the 70s? Like, is it widely accepted that the suicide statistics are a reaction to these five tenants uh i i won't go that far because i don't know the whole history of suicide rates and how that's changed over time before the 1970s um and like people use suicide statistics um for multiple different things because yes although males complete suicide far more often than females um females attempt it around seven times more often than males but what is I think particularly relevant is that around grade six is when a sing- generally a significant time in males' lives where they become more emotionally restricted. And that is around the age where those suicide rates start diverging based on gender. So the suicide rates before then are fairly um, similar for males and females. But then as emotional stoicism or restricting emotions increases for males disproportionately the suicide rate also increases disproportionately so i would look at that and say there's evidence that your ability to uh, share your emotions and to connect with your own emotions is relevant for the discussion about suicide i knew coming into this our time together that we'd have the ability to rabbit trail and i would 
lose track of notes I made and things I wanted to, to do. So before we get going, I want to go back to emotional restriction because that's one of, that's obviously a significant piece to the puzzle. But to set things up for the listener, I've pulled something from a paper that you wrote and the paper was written in response to a fairly popular Gillette ad campaign. And so I want to read that now and then uh, just the piece that I pulled and then let that set up your actual research that you're doing currently right now as part of your PhD because I want to get into that. Does that make sense? Yeah. So this is you talking. I started researching this subject quite unintentionally. I was researching students with behavioral needs and discovered that 81% of them are male. This led me to explore masculinity and to 40 years of research which show that men are likely to believe and rigidly adhere to norms of masculinity, particularly emotional stoicism, autonomy, and dominance, and are much more likely to suffer negative psychological and physical problems. They are also more likely to hurt other people. Let's be clear. These traits aren't healthy for anyone to adhere to in excess, but males are significantly more likely to be expected or pressured into being that way. So those are your words from a while back. And I should say that we're allowed to change our thoughts. So I should first ask you, do you know, is that still something that you say? Yep. I stand by that. And then two, I thought that'd be a good introduction to the research you're actually doing today in the, in the lower mainland. Yeah, I, I do stand by that. Um, the only things I would change is that it's, I do find it important to have some qualifier words that um, I'm not sure if I wrote more likely um, and, and some males, because I think a lot of that, the polarization in the conversation about masculinity, a lot of it could just be minimized if people just said like some males tend to do this or are more likely to do this rather than stating absolutes because that often sets people's backs up. So can you bring us into the details of some of the work that you're doing with these, I believe it's grade 12 boys in various schools. And is it only the Langley school district or is it, is it larger parts of the Fraser Valley or lower mainland? Uh, it's more the geographical area around Langley. So tell us about it. What are you actually what are you doing? So it's building off of my master's research. And my master's research is when I created and led a social emotional intervention um, for boys um, that were kind of deemed more, either they had a history of more problematic behaviors or they were going through some troubling times. And so for the first semester, me and a counselor, teacher and colleague and friend of mine um, kind of led this intervention um, psychoeducational, talking about emotions, just discussing different things and different pressures on being a man. And then the next semester, these boys mentored um, elementary students that were kind of on a similar trajectory to some of them. And so they were able to kind of mentor and offer some guidance and advice for grade six or seven males from a nearby school. And in that experience, working with the quote unquote, um, bad boys, like the typical what schools might call or teachers might call, um, hopefully not anymore, um, problematic kids, which they were, we talked about that label. They knew that they often had that label associated with them. But working with them and hearing their stories, it was super emotional, impactful experience that I wanted to research kind of the whole spectrum of beliefs 
about emotions and masculinity and school experiences from boys' own perspectives. Um, so not just, I think often there's this assumption that boys are, don't want to talk. I come across this a lot. I've had academics say you'll never get boys to talk. And so my research right now is looking at um, first a survey about what do they actually believe about emotions, school and masculinity. And then from that, I'm selecting a diverse range of opinions and seeking to interview 20 people further about those topics. And it's, it's funny. So I had people say like, oh, you're never going to get boys to talk. And I have 65 participants so far. I need 165. But I'm actually running into another ethical problem is because based on the survey results of those 65, 60 of them want to talk. Um, and now I have all these participants that have stories and stuff that they really want to share and I won't have time to do that. And so there is the assumption that boys don't want to talk or can't talk. Um, I understand some boys don't want to, but some females don't either. And so I think there's a lot of research about boys and lots of conversations about boys, but I want their voices to be um, essential for my current research. Why do we believe that boys don't want to talk? Because generally speaking, uh, boys do have difficulty in talking um, or that they are uncomfortable or don't know how to talk. But I think often we don't ask them in ways that they might be receptive to. So is it the anonymity in your process that is that the reason why you have 60 boys who are clamoring to talk or what's the difference there? Because I, I haven't talked to them yet. I don't know why they want to talk to me, but other than I can only assume that like how, when I, when I introduce my research to them, and I say kind of the reasons for why I want to research um, and hear from them is because I've, I know that some men have connected or some of these participants have connected on the fact that, oh, yes, the pressures to grow up being a male were super significant for me. And I want to share my story, um, but I, don't, I can't speak to the other ones, but I assume it's because something resonates and that someone actually yeah, I, I'd, I'd be lying if it probably helps that I, I think I'm an approachable person, um, someone that I think it would be hard to do this research if I was 60 years old. Sure, absolutely. And so there's kind of a sense, hopefully, that he's not so far removed from my own experience, that he's someone I could talk to. So what's the, in the data and research that you've done so far, maybe that you've done, or even that others similar to you have done, what are the expectations that boys are saying they're needing to live up to? What's being shared so far? Sorry, in my data or in well, all of the data? Either, either or. I mean, you're in the middle. We could talk, you could say specifically to your data to start. Yeah, I'll start with my, so my master's research. One participant in my interview said, like, I really wish I could share my emotions with my friends without being called a sissy or a pussy. Mm -hmm. And that is a super common theme. Like the pressure, I think what surprised not, I shouldn't say surprised, but really the emotions that they felt comfortable expressing was happiness and anger or just neutral. So happiness, anger being like polar opposites, two extremes or stoic right in the middle. Yeah, that was what the boys in my master's talked a lot about. And already from my data, from my PhD um, surveys that I have back is there's a couple of written questions on there. And it's so fascinating and heartbreaking that those same themes of happiness and anger, the emotions that they feel like they show the most or are comfortable or can easily access 
the reasons why they access those and why happiness um, is so important for them is because they don't want to burden people with their other emotions. Mm. And so I think that tells a very different narrative about some of the reasons why, why boys don't talk more. One is because there's this pressure that they have to have it all together, that they need to be strong for other people. And so that's why they have this mask of happiness. And, I, and long term, you end up shutting down your other emotions. Brene Brown um, says it more eloquently than me, that you can't, like neurobiologically, you can't feel your positive emotions as strongly if you numb your negative ones. You have to feel kind of all of them in order to get all of them in their richness. Yeah. I have a question that I'm going to do my best. I'm going to fumble over a little bit, but I'm going to do my best. It's related to, I think, partially to what you just said. And it's like a narrative in my head. So bear with me as I try to get it out. In our evolution, if we go back, you know, 100, 200, 300, we go back as far as we want. We were in different places where boys maybe had to be something because of, you know, society at the time. So like, you know, if we lived in times of war or different eras where the actual work required uh, high risk of pain, higher risk of death, physical toil, you know, whether you want to talk about mining or whatever, it's very different than where we are today. Where, where today, you know, you, for the most part, you don't have to risk dying to put food on the table. You, it, you don't need to be the strongest to do something because of, you know, automation and technology and whatever. But is it possible that what was required of a man and needed for society, you know, in our history is just different than what's needed today? And what we're wrestling with is in fact just part of the story of evolution in that, you know, we needed to be something 500 years ago that we just don't need to be today. So some of that stoicism or, you know, locking down of emotions, it was in fact necessary for some things that we did because it was the only way you could accomplish what you were trying to do because of how difficult or extreme it was. Is that, a, is that fair? Do you, you follow what I'm saying there? Yeah, I follow what you're saying. And I, uh, mostly totally agree with that and if i can use like you're talking about the macro i would say that there's some things that weren't necessary um even historically speaking like polygamy or Mm. things like that like um power over power in this form of dominance or control over females Mm -hmm. i wouldn't say that that was historically necessary right even though you could make arguments for like if kubla khan didn't have all these wives, then the world would be less pop- uh, populated. You could make sure s- some things, yeah. But just using your macro example and forming it to just a micro example is that a boy growing up in an emotionally unsafe household, it would be, in a sense, dangerous to be emotionally soft and vulnerable and expressive, mm. especially with his family, because the context wouldn't be safe. And so understanding that although it's not like hopefully he can have out other sources where he can process um, his emotions with people, but growing up in a household that it's not safe to do that, it's adaptive to become emotionally stoic or at least definitely understandable. But the thing is, over time, these often get rigidly embodied. And so when that danger has passed, then you're unable to actually change and access that. So I think what you talk about human evolution is that what's necessary at one point in time no longer becomes necessary and that's when change needs to occur. Mm -hmm. And I totally agree with that. And we find ourselves, I guess, in that awkward spot 
mm. today where we've still got, we've got a portion of the population that is still alive that it could be argued that grew up in a time where some of those things you just mentioned were relevant and necessary or just at least a part of their context. And now we're in a place where it's not as relevant or not as needed. And this is where conflict, you know, can grow. I, I think of, I, I have a hard time not thinking of how war plays its impact in this conversation, you know, to have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of men primarily, I know there was women, but primarily men go off into a battlefield and probably out of necessity close off a, a part of their humanity and emotionally and whatever in order to do what needed to be done and then come home and reintegrate those people into society. And then those people have children and, you know, impact generations to come like that. That has to be part of what we're, we're fighting against given that the last, you know, we're not that far removed from wars. We, in fact, we still have them going yeah. on. Is that, is that fair? Yeah. The generational trauma and also the sense that, um, this is when people talk about how patriarchy hurts men as well, is that in order to reinforce power, like men have sacrificed, yeah, largely men have sacrificed their lives and as well as their, their emotional lives for fighting for other people. And it's super difficult and you can understand why there would be so much backlash and controversy in critiquing that system mm -hmm. because it would be hard to separate oh if you're critiquing the system that that promotes these ideals that we hold up to of sacrifice and honor in war like i won't lie i was tempted to join the army as well mm -hmm. like it's not like i have anything um to critique of actually at all of soldiers who do that but crit critiquing the system can be dangerous for people because then you'd have to question the extent of the sacrifice and the costs and benefit analysis mm -hmm. of of this trauma overseas coming back home the ptsd and the impact on the family mm -hmm. um yeah it's something that i have so much empathy for soldiers as part of the larger um conversation though about how power structures um and how governments rely on the sacrifice of males war is what is that saying war is old men talking and young men dying yeah i think that's that probably sums it up. I do think it's it's fair to say, I would say it's reasonable to say in the, in the in the war conversation, at least this would be my opinion. I realize people might, you know, not like me for this, but I would go so far as to say that war has been and is absolutely necessary at times. You know, there are there are times in history where it, you know, things like that needed to occur. But just because something's necessary and needs to happen does not mean that you're going to then avoid the psychological catastrophe that goes along with it and the PTSD and the, you know, and the, and the generational stuff that we're talking about. It's gray. It's not black and white. It's, it's just the way it is. Yeah. And, and even if someone's to hold the opinion that's necessary, um, yeah, delighting in it is a totally other thing Absolutely. or em embracing it, um, fully without realizing the significance of it is different. So you may be, don't know this. How I came to know you or know of you was through Instagram. It's at re.masculate, right? We'll get, we'll, we'll make sure we're, we get that clear for the, for the listener, but I'm, I'm probably alone in my bed at some point six or nine months ago and I'm doing the whatever, get lost in Instagram space thing. And I come across your feed and I get curious. And the thing that, that got me was 
some of your content curation in your posts. And, you know, of course, that led me to understand what it is you're all about and what you're researching. So for the sake of today, what I thought we could do together to continue to spark great conversation was I, I drew a few, I pulled a few things out of your, your feed that I know when I read them, I went, oh, that's, that's interesting, or I want to talk about that. And so if, if it's all right with you, that's what we're going to do now. And I've got, I got a few I want to, I want to pull out and then, and then look at you and say, go, start talking. Huh. Um, and it's not all your words. I mean, you, 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 you're, what you do here is sometimes you quote people, sometimes you come up with your own thought. And then, you know, it sparks this great conversation and, and, you know, sometimes it's in the conversation or, or, or the original post that I'm most interested, but here's a post you made. It's a quote and it says Francis 2000. I guess you could tell us who Francis is, but boys tend to think an ideal student is one who behaves well. Girls tend to think an ideal student is one that learns well. Okay, go. This is where you go. (laughs) I go, what does that fill, fill in the gaps? Where does that come from? And what does that mean? Well, I think this speaks to something subconsciously or I think this speaks to kind of my main missions with gender um, awareness is that there's lots of subconscious things we assume about gender and we don't realize how different those messages can be um, for males and for female students particularly and so like I said earlier with my participants knowing that they were viewed as the bad boys Mm. It's the stereotype and the commonly reinforced thing that male students are the problematic ones. So it makes sense that they would think that good students have good behavior because they're always getting in trouble for their bad behavior. And female students have a different message. um, And there's lots of research to back this up that generally females are silenced, taught to sit still and be studious. And so that's what they internalize more is that to be a good student means to be academically um, gifted. And so I would argue that those gendered messages harm all genders, but in different ways. Okay, so this, you're kind of hitting on the question. So the, the thought that popped in my head when I saw this, and I actually wrote it down months ago and I still had it. So here was my thought. It was this, what does this say about teacher and or parental messaging to these kids? So there's research that shows parents, uh, fathers and mothers tend to talk to their female children differently than they talk to their male children about emotional events. So both parents, mothers and fathers, are more likely to uh, use emotive language when talking with their females' children, and they're more likely to um, embrace feelings of sadness and scaredness with their daughters, whereas the reverse is true in that if their son goes through something sad or scary, they're way less likely to um, empathize and reflect that like oh you were feeling scared or sad um, are less likely to do that with their sons and some research in, in schools and what teachers also do is that they actually tend to be more encouraging of students of male students if they get a question wrong um, be like oh good try that's mm. that's, that's uh, not the right answer um, whereas if a female gets a question wrong more like more likely to say, oh, nope, not the right answer, anyone else. And so there's just, not saying all or even most teachers do that, but there are just subtle things that we've internalized. Or if we're, if we're not aware of them, it's more easy for them to come out. It's, and I would use my own example as a teacher. I never thought twice about getting a male's assignment that had messy handwriting. Huh. But, I, but becoming aware of it, realized, oh yeah, I 
if a female student has messy writing, I think, oh, this looks like, like I had the thought, it looks like a boy's writing. Right. And subconsciously, there's a, you've attached something negative yeah. that you don't attach to the male. Correct. The boy. I have, so I have three children, 13, 10, 8, girl, boy, girl. And I, my experience in dealing with disciplinary issues in their school is that, yes, boys and girls are handled differently. Yeah, so I'm thinking of other research articles that I've read of classroom observations of, and like the research shows that like teachers generally give males more space, like physical space and linguistic space in the classroom. So Mm -hmm. they talk disproportionately more than females. But often the teachers don't, like part of the reason is teachers don't want to often be correcting these males, um, especially at high school levels, who might talk back more to them. And they just think, you know what? Like, if, they're t- if this male student is whispering to another student, like, I'm not going to address it because that's just going to cause more of a problem. And then all of a sudden, a female person, female student talks way less than the other student. And then the teacher gets right on that female student. Yes. So that's a common theme that I see throughout. What I would say is that within a patriarchal system, which is school system could fall in or people have grown up in the system of gender mm-hmm. is that females and males equally can perpetuate these stereotypes it's not the onus a lot of the onus about masculinity and changing narratives is on men for sure but right now i have a pink phone case and i've only been made fun of it from females not from males right and so they're yeah, sometimes people assume that it's just males perpetuating the restrictive part. We, we both play this game. Yes. Men and women both play this and game. And the research on teachers, people think, oh, it, the solution would be saved if we have more male teachers. Because I can't, I can't think of the stats off the top of my head, but it's like 70 or 80% of teachers, maybe 73% of teachers in BC are female um, across elementary school and sure. high school. got it. And so people think, oh, if we just have more male teachers, that would be solve the problem. But research on male teachers have shown the same things that it doesn't matter if you're female or male, if you're more likely, it's not you're one or the other, you're not more likely to perpetuate the gender norms. It just matters on if you individually perpetuate them or not. Mm. So your gender doesn't predict as a teacher whether you're going to be one way or the other. Mm-hmm. But just because elementary school teachers are primarily all female, um, yeah, you're going to come across. It's the females embodying higher standards on female students often. This situation that I've been dealing with in my own family with my own children has brought to my mind a name of somebody who's created some polarization in you know, the context of this current conversation, Jordan Peterson. Yes. And I do not want to go down to Jordan. We do not need to go down to Jordan Peterson rabbit trail. But there is something that Jordan talked has talked about which came to my mind in this context he talks about agreeableness and i'm not i don't again i don't want to get into a citing jordan peterson and the accuracy of his data but anecdotally it's relevant for this conversation he makes a statement that says possibly one of the reasons females find themselves positionally in culture and in jobs you know where they do is because they tend to be more agreeable than men and when I read that and, you know, I, th- I thought through that and you think about your own life and different circumstances, you know, and, and, he, and he cites some examples, you know, 
a man is more likely to use anger or aggression to get what they want. A female is maybe less likely to. And whether or not that's right or wrong, it can pay benefits in the context of our world, whether it's, you know, trying to bust through a ceiling at a job or get the next management position or just fight for something that you want, regardless of whether the intentions are good or not. Yeah, I would look at that and say it has positives and negatives ramifications for all genders because, um, yes, agreeableness um, might make you avoid the radar, but at the same time, then there's a double standard when females get in touch with their anger like the consequences are, are crazy severe that we don't take them as seriously. They're hysterical. Yes. Females in politics. Yeah. Oh, a, you're crazy. You're crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, I can't speak totally to what Jordan Peterson says about agreeableness other than there's for sure double standards at play. Um, and there's a great book about females anger um, called rage becomes her. And that is a great read. And, and yeah, I think, I think anger for I know I'm talking about a lot of dualism about males and females as if uh, there's not more diverse genders out there. But for the sure. sake of simplicity is that males and females have it. Both of them have an interesting relationship with anger and our society has an interesting relationship with how they perceive anger from both um, that needs to be reworked and deconstructed. Okay. Next Instagram post males levels of emotional restriction increases during adolescence as do their disproportional suicide rates so we're back on this is the emotional restriction thing that we touched on that i wanted to come back to so first let's just maybe define emotional restriction and then get into the the piece about you know how that's related to suicide rates so emotional restriction uh could be defined as your willingness to share what you're feeling with yourself and with others so the willingness and the second part of it, which it could be both, would be your ability to share your emotions with yourself or with others. So what you're feeling, um, things that you're going through. And it's kind of this catch-22 because um, some people are willing to share but lack the ability to actually know how to share. So when I talk to boys about emotions, like what, what are you guys feeling? It's actually hard because they don't have the language to put to it so they have some willingness but no not no ability but they have less of an ability to actually speak about it and then you have other people that are very emotionally aware of what's going on with them but they're not willing to open up to anyone else and so emotional restriction kind of encompasses both of those things so within the male talking about the boys you're discussing why do the boy the boys that lack the ability to talk why is that related to the topic or is that just randomness that like, you know, some boys and some girls lack the ability to talk about their emotions? Oh, definitely some females do as well. But I would say this goes back to what I was saying about how parents talk to their children about emotional events and viewing emotional intelligence or emotional language and expressiveness as something you have to learn over time as well. And so the fact that females often have more social emotional play also trains them to talk more about emotional things um whereas males if their parents aren't reflecting back their sadness or their fear as much then they're going to have less ability or capacity to do that and to understand how to do that so is this a byproduct of the fact that again we're talking on averages here mm -hmm. that my and i'll say my my girls 
grew up, you know, played with hypothetically Barbies and My Little Pony, which draws out different things than the boy or my boy that grew up playing with G.I. Joe, Transformers. Like, is it all, it's got to be, right? It's all connected to that because from a young age, they're allowed to, we're allowing our children to do things differently based on what we're doing in the home, correct? Yeah, and I would say it's not that biology doesn't play a role at all, but if you look at the types of toys that are encouraged in boys and females, I care way less about the color of them but it's the type of toys given to boys encourages more tactile spatial awareness and the types of toys for sure. females encourages more social emotional uh, play. Got it. So these things don't have to be bad for a boy. It could be a dump truck and building blocks or whatever. Is that a fair, that that's an example of what you're talking about, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, my big thing is that n- most stereotypical masculine and feminine things aren't bad in and of themselves. They're only bad when they become rigidly enforced on yourself or on others. Right. You need to play with this because this yeah. is the toy that you play with. Yeah. Got it. And I think without that gender awareness, people often assume, oh, my son is just so different from my daughter. And it's because they're innately biologically different. But there's all these things at play um, from before they're even born that we start thinking about, I'm going to play catch with my son. Like kind of as parents, we can get down these thoughts about like we can start thinking about our children based on their genders um, differently. And so it's hard to prize what's actually innately biologically different from your son compared to your daughter. Yes. And what is just a regurgitation of the social construction that you're not even aware of that you're promoting in your son and or daughter. Totally. So then the, so the emotional restriction that, you know, clearly you observe then, and we'll even, we can talk about your, the people you're dealing with are just, you know, culturally as a whole, what's the relationship then to the disproportionate rates of suicide in men and, and women? I will um, disclaim that I'm not an expert about suicide, like emotions for sure are, and su- I come across a lot of suicide mm-hmm. articles, but there are definitely researchers that devote themselves just to sure. all the literature. Yeah. And suicide's complicated. I don't know if I referenced this earlier, but that females attempt to commit suicide more frequently. Yeah, you said that. And I, I didn't want to stop your thought, but that was interesting. So they attempt it more, but they're successful less. Yeah. And so a lot of it goes down to the types of ways that females try to. Sure. And often it's viewed as, like sometimes it's more often viewed as their suicide attempt is in itself a, a call for help. Or if they use less drastic means, they have a ability for people to find them and save them in time. So it's, it's complicated and I, I'm oversimplifying it. Whereas males tend to use more dramatic means. Mm-hmm. Which can be more lethal means. Yeah, more lethal yeah. means. Yeah. And it's, um, some people say it's more impulsive. So there's less uh, forethought in, into their suicide attempts. And so there's less um, chance or awareness of other people knowing about it. Yeah. And I'll speak to some of my own experience. Um, is that part of my research has been f- formed from people that I know who have committed suicide, Mm. um, including a student. And I think because there's less avenues for males to speak about emotions, that there's less signs, um, in quotes and quotes. Sure. um, Less signs for people to be aware of in males. And that is also part of the reason why there just might be less things in place. But then that that messaging that they have to have, keep it all together as a man. And then when something falls apart, they have less coping mechanisms. 
Um, so that all plays in with emotions. At least it definitely correlates to the ability to make emotion or to experience and express their emotions. And to go back to that Instagram post is that they call it the double bind or there's that kind of two boy crisis. And whereas there's also a female crisis, what has been called that is that for males uh, around the age of five, when they start school in kindergarten, that is when they've already internalized that's not okay, as okay to show emotions. When actually the research shows that before that age, boys are often more emotional than females in terms of displaying their emotions. And so age five is a turning point, and then grade six around that age is another turning point where those pressures to become emotionally restricted and become a man, the typical stereotypical sense, um, the pressures increase dramatically after that point. Whereas for females, they're allowed to be tomboys longer. It's more okay than if your son is playing. People generally have, are more okay with their daughters being tomboys for longer. And that changes around the age of puberty. And that's when females often get hypersexualized. Right. 12, 13, 14, somewhere yeah. in there. Yeah. But boys are having to drop their quote unquote feminine characteristics at grade six. Or even earlier. Or age, even earlier. Like age four or five is when they're aware of it. Got it. Especially around sadness and fear. Like, I'm not scared. I'm not yeah, yeah, yeah. sad. And so I hate suffering contests. Like, I don't like comparison. Do females or males have it worse? Like, Sure. And so I don't mean to say that's my caveat to what I'm about to say is that um, arguably because males get socialized to restrict earlier um, often than females who are around 12, 13, um, there's less brain development. And so there's more long-term emotional consequences because you're because you're dealing with an underdeveloped brain yeah and so they've just had less of life lived experiencing their emotions more fully okay we can use we can use me as a guinea pig for the next one if you want anger is often the quickest way for men to regain a lost sense of power i actually slightly misquoted it (laughs) okay well i think i think the messaging is still accurate it's true but how i phrased it is actually true for almost all people is that like that's one of the purposes of anger is but unfortunately it's often repressed in females to get in touch with their anger because they don't think they can be angry because they maybe have to be agreeable but the one good thing about anger is that it lets us know that some boundary has been crossed and we oppose that boundary and so it anger is a way for us to get back into it but the actual quote is more that violence is often the easiest way for men um, to f- feel powerful if they've lost that sense of power. So in terms of like the boys I've worked with in the past is if something's getting effed up in their life, mm-hmm. um, they'll punch a locker. They have tons of holes in the drywall in their bedrooms that is, their parents don't know about because they're covered in posters. Sure. So it's like, I got to put up another poster today because because when, yeah, when you don't have many outlets, anger is a great tool, but without proper outlet it gets often turned into violence i'm not saying that most men turn to violence because most men don't turn to violence when they're angry but it's just anger is often connected to physical harm against self or others it might also be too that men turn or boys turn to an acceptable form of violence like i can if i think back to my own life i can remember turmoil and trauma and anxiety in my household for various reasons and 
I used, you know, at the time I would, I played hockey, I played basketball. I remember using that as outlets and like there are circumstances where maybe I did something on the ice surface in a more aggressive way than I normally would. And, that, you know, maybe I was channeling something or, you know, does that make sense? Like I, I do feel like I had those acceptable outlets where I was still, it might've still been anger or violence, but it was okay that I was doing it there. Had I not had that outlet, maybe I'm blasting a hole in the wall or blasting somebody in the face. I have no idea. But I had those options. Yeah, and I think there's a hierarchy of um, helpful ways to express anger and what you spoke to earlier about the evolution of, in a sense, of our process and our relationship with anger is that like, for one of the boys, instead of breaking his fingers, punching a locker, he would he learned to scream or yell into his pillow or punch his pillow like way better. That's great. And then they would like, I would just recommend that like, yeah, keep on working on every stage to minimize harm against others first mm-hmm. and then harm against yourself because yeah, men or like a lot of that violence is towards themselves. So clearly anger is a normal and it's, it's gotta be a normal and acceptable human emotion. But where are men using it improperly to regain a sense of power or to gain power? I think part of the thing is that there's a lack of awareness about why they have anger. And so that anger is leading them. So there's a lack of awareness that power even has anything to do with it. They're just angry because they're angry. Like um, some of the boys I talked to um, were physically abusive towards their girlfriends or um so but talking with them is that like they didn't know why they were angry it just came over them and it felt like they describe it like and this is in the research as well like they don't know why they're angry just a a switch flipped in their brains and then they were suddenly lashing out um physically and i think that speaks to the unawareness that like anger is often a secondary emotion meaning that there's something behind the anger so are you angry because you got betrayed because you um, felt guilt or felt shame. And I think shame is a huge part of that conversation mm. is that it is so much easier to externalize um, your anger than to actually look inward. And Donald Trump has a great quote, my favorite quote by Donald Trump. <laughs> he was asked not too long ago, maybe a couple of years ago, um, what uh, does he kind of like look, oh, it was like an, an introspective question. And he answered, I don't like analyzing myself too much because I might not like what I find. Right, which which is probably quite the most vulnerable I've ever heard Trump be. Yeah, and I think that speaks to a lot of men is that they're scared of what they'll find inside mm-hmm. um, if they explore that anger, and so they don't want to be angry. But the thing is, if you deny that you are angry, or you deny like, oh no, I can control it without actually processing what's underneath, you're just arguably a ticking time bomb for when that anger does come out in an uncontrolled way. That's why one of my reframes with the work I do is that actually doing things that were deemed emasculating, like processing your emotions, talking about your feelings, um, being vulnerable, not throwing the punch takes more, a different kind of strength, but I would argue a more deeper, important strength um, than what has previously been called masculine. And so it's this reframing that like doing your own emotional work is so tough. Like to not wear the mask, to wear the mask has a, is hard. It's a burden to wear the mask of always being fine. But mm-hmm. to not wear the mask 
is also excruciatingly hard. Well said. So where I land in my brain in this topic and why I was so interested in your research and wanted to do this with you here today, one of the reasons I should say, not the only reason, I have no doubt in my mind that, you know, 30, 40 years today, from today, we're going to be way better than we are today and better than we were. I mean, clearly, you know, the research you're doing, the conversations we're having, we, we're having, we weren't doing this. And, you know, that's evolution and that's amazing. However, that doesn't solve all of today's problems. And so I'm a 39-year-old man raising a child, running a company. I have colleagues who are men. I have people who are men who work for me. And we don't, we're not fortunate enough to have, you know, these types of philosophies exposed to us when we're five, six, seven, nine, 10, 12, whatever, right? So I feel a little lost because you can't unknow what you know. So I'm aware of some things, which is good, but what the fuck, you know, like what do you, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to screw up my son. I want to be, you know, the best leader I can be. But I'm intimately aware of the fact that I'm screwed up and I don't have it all figured out. So what do we, what do we do for, you know, the people who are 40 and 50 and 60 years old and who are willing to acknowledge that this is a bit of a mess we got ourselves in? Yeah. Admitting that you have, admitting that we've gotten into a mess and ability to self-critique is a huge um, a first step to realize um, that you might not want to propagate things that you grew up with. And I think... I can definitely empathize with the feelings of, so what if we've built our identities around these things? And then you're saying that these are evolving, then is what is my identity? And, and that is this liminal flux space that provides tons of uncertainty. And um, it's much simpler when there's an easy gender narrative that this is my role, um, stick with it, um, because it's simple, versus... It's a great question and it really gets to the heart of, I think, some of the deficits in the conversation. There's a lot of deconstruction. It's not always constructive deconstruction. So how do we make it, um, how do we tell people what the fuck to do mm-hmm. is, is a huge challenge. Um, and what you've already just described is modeling your own process and own vulnerability that you're a work in progress, that you're, it's okay to change your mind about things, about different beliefs, because the research shows that like male role models are really significant to help um, younger males become less restrictive, but only if those male role models are also doing their own emotional work and becoming emotionally attuned and things like that. Right. You can only lead somebody where you yourself have gone. Yeah. And like it can, I know personally it can often be harder. It's so actually, I find it so easy to critique myself. It's much harder to extend love towards myself and grace in that process. And I think for my own kids, like if they actually know that like dad loves himself, even with his all his, his work in progress and not messing things up, um, that's super huge. And so like my, my advice to about, about masculinity and femininity in general is like, yeah, cause I know a lot of people are worried that like, Oh, am I being too one way or another way? And I think it, for me it comes back to the danger is when it's rigid when what you think about gender has to be rigid and so just trying to it's not like your daughter can't um can't be more feminine stereotypically feminine or your son more stereotypically masculine but it's just ensuring and checking in with them that they're 
that it's not because they have to be that way. Like there's other options. Yes. Um, and being aware that and part of that conversation is talking to your children. Like, let's say your son does want to wear pink when he's in high school, that is going to potentially cause bullying and just being honest with him ab- about that um, would be an open dialogue. And I think, so let me, hold on. Let me just stop you there. Cause I just, I think that's a, I think that's a relevant thing I don't want to miss out on. So if a child is doing something that as an adult, you look at and you go, oh shit, that could create a problem. Cause we know it could create a problem mm-hmm. rather than without them knowing, trying to get them to not wear that shirt or not wear those shoes, go to them and say, Hey, I got to talk to you about something and then make, bring them in on the conversation, give them the knowledge and then just leave it there. Is that kind of what you're, and just let them know what they might encounter. Is that fair? Yeah. Like not do it too preemptively because you don't want to over assume that they're going to like, you don't want to create a problem that isn't there. there. Yes. Yeah. But if a problem does, does get there, then talking about it and not forcing change. Um, yeah, definitely would be good advice. What has been, this is a massive topic, but I just, I can't help but ask it because it's now I'm just turning this into a story about my life and my children. But what is going on in your experience with social media in the, um, you know, in in your research and in what you're observing in, in the adolescent, I guess it's men and women, but you're researching men. Is there anything positive that's happening there? Or is it all just like, I have, I'm so tainted and I just hate everything that I, that I see. I mean, clearly there's positive that comes from it. We're talking, but tell me there's something positive happening there. For, yeah, it takes, I mean, you, and if you can't, you can't, no. but I'm, I think the positive parts of social media is that especially for previously marginalized groups of people. So, uh, people that might be gay in a household that's not accepting of being gay, that they can find an online community or have an outlet to express themselves in a way that they can't or aren't. Okay, that's good. Another positive is that they're exposed to the negative influencers, but also exposed to, can be exposed to positive ones or some influencers who use a sort of platform as well. And so there's more awareness of some racial issues like there's way more of a global mindset in the students that I taught based on social media of, I wouldn't say it's amazing. Like I think European children are generally more aware of global events, but there is this kind of global connectedness that said there is a lot of negatives. And I spoke a couple of times in different panels about masculinity at the university of Edinburgh with undergrad students and the common theme, which I was actually slightly surprised by, there's, I guess, enough of a generation gap between me who's 29 and the university students who are like early 20s is that they said like Instagram is so terrible for their sense of body image. Yeah. And that, and for males, that was the common theme, just like how terrible Instagram was for them. Uh-huh. And so, yeah, there's unrealistic expectations on males' bodies. Yeah. But as a teacher, there is so much sexting and like dangerous borderline illegal stuff based on age of consent and sharing things that mm-hmm. yeah i think it's something i think there's lots of sexual shame in our culture so we don't talk to our children nearly enough about sex education and consent and things like that and it's become this wildly unregulated medium you know like it's not like it's not fair to say that before we had 
you know, cell phones and kids had access to social media, that this stuff didn't exist. Clearly, you know, the, it existed in the minds of humans, but now there's this channel and this avenue that it can happen and it's largely unregulated and parents don't know what's going on. Teachers, it's not teachers jobs to regulate it. And I mean, it scares the shit out of me. I have, you know, I, for all my kids and I, I don't know what to, I don't know what to do with that. Cause you know, what do you, you're not going to, I don't believe the right answer is to restrict a child from a, from a device until they're 18 years old. I mean, that's not good either. Um, but I just, it's been hard for me to find positive elements to it. That's for sure. Yeah. From what I've glimpsed on the social media research is that uh, limiting, like not having their phones in their bed, bedroom before bed is significant. It's huge. Yeah. Yeah. I want to go back to one thing that we, when I, when I introduced you earlier, I, I took an excerpt from an article. The article that you wrote was somewhat in response to a Gillette ad campaign which was cool that i saw this because i have on my own prior to knowing you or reading this article i was aware of the ad campaign i found it fascinating i saw the response to it and you know there was there was outrage on both sides of the conversation so i just want to dialogue with you a little bit but particularly on the response so for those that don't know it, I guess you'll have to go online and, and look at it. Just Google Gillette ad campaign and it'll blow up your computer. But Gillette used to be, you know, Gillette, the best a man can get. You can remember that jingle in your head from the, you know, 80s and 90s or whatever that was. And then sometime recently here, it was in the last year and a half or two, Gillette did this, you know, one and a half minute video. Is it, it was more along the lines of, is this really the best a man can be? And, you know, it highlighted a lot of the things that we've, discussed here today in a very artistic, you know, amazing one and a half minute clip way where they talked about, you know, bullying and shaming and sexual abuse. And they, they really called out men. And when I watched it for the first time, I didn't even know how to, I, I can't say that, that I would even know how to define the emotions that I had when I watched it. I think that I probably felt some conviction. I think that I also, there were, I didn't like parts of it. I felt it was like focusing on a lot of negatives. And then, you know, Gillette released it and the world blew up and they got, I mean, the, the, the people were divided. I just want to hear you, you talk about that a little bit because clearly you, you took notice of it as well. Yeah, and it's, I find, often find myself in this weird place in that like working with males and being a male myself, like, and especially like a white male, um, I understand or I can easily see what the reaction is going to be from, from generally white males. Um, and yet at the same time, I totally understand why that com commercial was made and the message behind it. Um, and so, yeah, I generally, I generally agree with the message of the Gillette commercial because I am able to separate that critiquing masculinity is not critiquing men. Yes. And there's, there's some critiques I actually do have. Like I would, if I was designing it, I would change it to be a bit more nuanced um, because I find the conversation in our media about masculinity is often very polarized. And so I know a lot of men felt shamed from that commercial. Um, I know some of men or some of the backlash was just thinking that the company isn't genuine about it. And yeah. so there's, a, there's different backlashes that you have to kind of separate it. Some of it's a backlash about the 
um, industry of it, the there was an marketing. There was it. an integrity gap because they were, you know, taking a higher road, if you would say mm-hmm. that. But then within their own company, and they were called out for this, they are, were producing some of their razors with questionable labor, you know, in various parts of the world. And then they got called out because within the hierarchy of the company and the upper levels of management, there were some, you know, man-woman issues going on that, you know, were contradictory to the messaging that they had in the ad. So that's how I came first to know about the commercial, actually. There's, a, there's an amazing Canadian marketing guy by the name of Ron Tite who wrote an amazing book called Think, Do, Say. And he used this story um, it, for his philosophy in the book, which we don't need to get into the narrative of that right now. But a lot of the backlash was not because what they were trying to say was a bad thing, but it's a bad thing to say it if you don't have your own house in order. And so they got called out for the integrity of it, if that makes sense. But that's only part of the backlash. I think what you're talking about, there was another tons of people who just felt shamed and that it was beating up on men. Yeah. And that um, also racism was a part of the conversation uh, from the backlash is that people argued, some people argued that the only men that were seen to be doing good in the commercial were men of color. Right. And so there was just also because it's online and YouTube in general is highly the population is highly male as well, male-dominated space, is that you have a lot of backlash due to the fact that um, they think it's feminist propaganda. Mm-hmm. And as soon as they say the word feminist, that's going to get people's backs up and they can't hear anything because I will defend that they, the, they're essentially, they missed the point of the, the commercial. Right. You can argue whether you think it was shaming and if shame is an effective way to promote change and things like that. But the message behind men being better, if you look at it statistically speaking, I think I would say, yes, men can be better, but I don't like one of the things that I say is that I definitely don't think most men are toxic, but I do think a lot of men are bystanders and speaking up in situations um, with other our male peers and male colleagues, that is the difficult thing. And so that I think is a good challenge, but I don't love the term toxic masculinity. I much prefer restrictive masculinity because I feel like that gets to what's at play here. Did you see the Agard or Agard watches response to the Gillette commercial? Yeah. And what did you think of that? So that commercial, if I remember correctly, was like showing what it men, did. men in all these heroic like fields okay so what it yeah so what it was really interesting so it took they took um so they would take a clip from something a scene of a man doing something and they used clips of like a fireman uh you know a police officer somebody in war or you know whatever and then they looked and then they ran data and it was accurate data across the bottom and it talked about you know death rate amongst men in the workforce suicide rates likelihood to have a significant injury at work um this was a very interesting statistic in the ad men who've the percentage of men who've lost all visitation rights to children through a separation who still pay full child support even though they can't see their kids which i've actually never even thought of that statistic until i and then i looked at that and i went holy shit it's above above 50 percent of men who never see their kids because they've lost the ability to still pay for them 
Anyways, it ran these stats and it used words like brave, hero, protector, vulnerable, disposable when they talked about, you know, death rates and things like that. And then of course, you know, so they took advantage of an opportunity and then the end of the ad was, you know, men, we, we want you to know that we love and appreciate you. And then it goes, you know, air guard watches or whatever. So, I mean, it's marketing. Let's not get lost in, in what it is, but I just wanted to hear you talk about that. Yeah. A couple of thoughts. One that devolves the conversation into a pissing contest about yeah. who's got it worse off. Yeah. And I would look at those stats and argue that that, like I, yeah, most, I think those stats are fairly accurate. I didn't back check the stats. I'm so but I, I, I am, I, I should say they, I'm not a researched individual on the topic. I will not, like, I'm sure they are roughly accurate. They would have to be if they put yes. them on up. Yeah. At the very least. Um, but I would argue that that is, a, that is evidence that patriarchy also hurts men. Mm. That the fact that they're disposable isn't a result of females, um, polit- political systems putting them in that place. It's that they are viewed as disposable, and that's what, um, I won't say all feminists, but the feminism that I would describe to definitely um, believes in and is promoting the well-being for men and women, and how do we raise them up together so that men's lives aren't viewed as disposable. Um, But when we talk about male privilege, which is what the backlash is primarily about, like, oh yeah, it's the privilege that men have such high suicide rates and um, put ourselves in harm's way and danger. Um, that's not the type of privilege that is being talked about. Well, it's being talked about in media, but like I said, it's not the nuanced actual conversation about privilege. Privilege has to do with your access to power. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, men have super dangerous jobs, um, but the access to power is that they have more choice over over what jobs they could have or not, whereas females are often limited or if they were in those jobs we'd be more likely to be sexually harassed or just harassed to some extent. So privilege isn't saying that men don't have very hard lives and very traumatic things. doesn't diminish anything that men go through. It just says that your gender doesn't play a role or that your access to power isn't limited based on your gender. And so like feminists would argue with the suicide rates that like it's, yeah, it's your scripting that means you can't show your emotions that you have to be this way. Like the way that you, if you think that you have to sacrifice your life for someone else, like, yeah, I have a hard time not viewing that as honorable as well. Like I would sacrifice my life for my child, but my wife would sacrifice her life it's, for it's our children. The, it's the brave heart way of thinking. Or it's the Mel Gibson mentality. Yeah. Yeah. And it definitely speaks to something within us, um, whether that's biological or just socialized. I'm not sure. But I think the commercials show that the dialogue around the conversation about masculinity is often missing the mark or they're speaking about different things. Yeah. And, and let's not forget that commercials are from a particular point of view with a goal to make money. So it's not necessarily an accurate depiction. I also will jump on something that you referenced in that. Can you speak about something if you don't have your whole house in order? Mm. And I think I definitely want to live that way for my sake. Like I'm, I take it very seriously that if I'm doing research about emotional restriction in men, I better make sure that I am practicing what I'm preaching, that I'm doing my own emotional work at the same time I'm doing this academic research because I, I get jaded by researchers who research a topic area but don't actually live it out in their personal lives. Right. So I definitely think it makes more sense. But at the same time, like a company, so many people, can they speak about, can they evolve in one area 
before another area is involved in. Right. Like, like I think of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. It's pretty socially I love aware. that we've circled back to Brooklyn Nine-Nine, by the way. <laughs> All of life comes back to Brooklyn Nine-Nine. <laughs> think of how they're quite socially attuned to a lot of racial dynamics, gender dynamics, um, and they don't abuse that in how they use humor. But one of, I would argue, one of their blind sides is with Terry and his fat suit and how they talk about fatness. Yeah. And so that is like, just shows that people and institutions are work in progress. And I think we need to have more grace for people to have a messy understanding. Um, Because I know know males and females who have just been ripped to shreds by feminists because they're not feminist enough. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, men who get ripped to shreds by other men for not being mad enough. So people are, are, are claiming this authority and not often recognizing that like we have complex contradictions within ourselves that we're still working through. Absolutely. And it's gray. There's a lot of gray. And if we adopt a position that a person can't speak to a topic unless they've got that topic completely figured out, which for starters, is a problem because there's varying interpretations of who gets to determine what's worked out and what's not worked out. But if we have that philosophy, then nobody can speak because show me, show me the person or the society or the organization that's actually got everything figured out. It's, I would argue that it's, it's hard to find. And, you know, back to that statement about the integrity gap, speaking about the, you know, the Gillette thing, you know, the context of that, to be fair to the writer in the book, was that you know, if you're a multinational company and you want to run an international ad campaign that speaks to gender equality issues being one of the things, then you better make damn sure that in your highest levels of management, you don't have that going on. Is that going on in the company at all times? Absolutely. But it can't be going on in the levels of your CEO or COO or whatever, or you run the risk of, you know, the type of backlash that they dealt with. So, um, but I don't think that's the same as saying, you know, like in this context and these conversations we're having and these conversations that I think are highly valuable and necessary, we have to be able, be allowed to talk about it without having everything completely figured out. And dare I say, even there's still being a contradiction in our lives because if we can't, then nobody's, nobody's going to be able to talk. Yeah. The one disclaimer I'd add is that we should be able to talk about it, but not necessarily in a position of authority. Or definitely not in a position of authority if we're talking about something that we don't, one, haven't done the research on or haven't done a wide breadth of talking to about the subject. Like as long as you qualify what you're saying. Sure. Yeah. Um, Right. and, and, And generally, I think we need to do better about listening. Right. I, early on in my teaching career, I saw that there's a danger with having a cap, like almost literally a captive audience every single day. I just saw it in some other teachers, but I could see it myself that you can start thinking that what you have to say is really important if you have people that are always listening to what you have to say. And so that's something I'm often, I try to reflect upon and make sure I'm not going to that level of, oh, podcasts want to talk to me. That means what I have to say is worth sharing. Um, maybe it's not, maybe, maybe not all of it is. And I'm t- still learning on what parts are and what parts aren't. Brandon, I can't think of a better place but that point right there to cap it and end our time together. Uh, It's been amazing talking to you. And I think um, you put language to some things that need language. 
And at the very least, our conversation today has allowed some people to hear some things dialogued about that um, they need to hear and hopefully gives them permission to have some conversations that they haven't been having internally. So um, I thank you sincerely for your time and I, uh, I hope we can do it again. Thanks. I love that. All right. Take care. Years ago, there were philosophies that we accepted as truth that we now know are myth. And we have replaced those philosophies with a higher level of thinking. This is part of our evolutionary story. None of this would be possible without those who dared to ask tough and sometimes unpopular questions. However, the results are worth the price paid by those who created the controversy by questioning what was believed to be true. We now know that the earth isn't flat. The sun doesn't revolve around the earth. There isn't a superior race, and being gay is not a disease. Brendan is asking questions about things that can be uncomfortable, and his research is likely to reveal broken philosophies and unhealthy patterns in our beliefs about masculinity. Although I enjoyed my time with Brendan, I was uncomfortable at times, because it became clear to me that I have my own thought patterns and beliefs that aren't the best for me or those I love. These conversations aren't easy to have privately or publicly, but we need to give ourselves permission to get things wrong in our pursuit of what is right and trust people like Brendan to lead us where we need to be. Please don't forget to check out the show notes if you want more information on the show or on Brendan. He can be found on Instagram at re.masculate. You can also find us on Instagram or on Twitter. Thanks for joining us today.